The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Samaritas, the state's largest private foster care and adoption agency. However, Samaritas also provides a number of other services around the state. They are one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in Michigan. They serve homeless families, persons with disabilities, abused and trafficked women. They also provide market rate and affordable housing for seniors and HUD housing for families and also have skilled nursing, memory care and rehab communities in Grand Rapids, Cadillac and Saginaw. Samaritas, we thank them for their support here at Deadline Detroit. Hey, greetings, everybody. Happy Thursday. A little bit cloudy, a little bit chilly today, but uh, nonetheless, not too bad out there. Anyway, coming up on today's program, uh, conversations with our two U.S. Senators, Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow. I was able to catch up with both of them up on Mackinac Island last week. And just in case you didn't see the live stream, I wanted to make sure you got a chance to hear them today. A lot of discussion about things like economic policy and more coming up on the Craig Folly Show today. Stick around. I think you'll enjoy it. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. We're live at the Grand Hotel for the Mackinac Policy Conference. My guest right now, of course, U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. Hi. Welcome. It's good to be with you. It's always You've a pleasure to talk hard. to you. Well, you know, it's not, it's not work. <laughs> I know. When you love you what you do. you look out the window here, it's not work. Yeah. Well, you know, why don't we start with that? Do you love yeah. what you do right now? I mean, you're you know, having interesting times in the U.S. Senate, for sure. Well, you know, I've lived in Michigan my whole life. I love being in a spot to solve problems, but it's a very difficult, chaotic time, so. Uh, that we've had better moments, a <laughs> better atmosphere, but I just do everything I can to try to keep my head down, get things done. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that you're being peppered with questions, especially, I mean, you're on the Agriculture Committee. Right. Uh, you know, this is a, a right. role that you played for a long time. It's a huge part of Michigan's economy. Uh, we've got tariffs, and now some potential bailouts for certain farmers that might be impacted right. by these tariff right. decisions. What kind of questions are you getting from people, and what are you telling them? Well, first of all, um, you know, I'm going to support our farmers in any way I can. But what they tell me over and over is we want trade, not aid. I mean, that's, you know, we we need markets. And so, um, and I'm not opposed, certainly agree with the president that we need to be doing certain things strategically with China. Um, No question about that. Uh, But they're not doing this in a thoughtful way. Uh, And our farmers are getting caught in the middle of it, which I'm deeply concerned about. So while they're, they're really being pretty chaotic in their trade policy, they come in with something to help farmers in terms of subsidies. But then we look at the first round of what they did. A lot of folks, like our cherry growers who are impacted, didn't get any help. Um, certain industries got help. Certain industries didn't. And what is even more alarming is that foreign-owned processing companies actually got American taxpayer dollars. So, for instance, JBS, which is a Brazilian company, pork processor, gets American taxpayer money, and in Brazil, they're taking our markets. They're taking the markets that uh, that uh, China used to provide us. And so, it's and, and there was a case where they were going to give money to a Chinese-owned company, a Smithfield Pork, which is now owned by a Chinese company, and I raised an issue, others did, and Smithfield themselves actually backed out and said, no, we won't take the money because they knew, I mean, it was outrageous. But USDA was w- going to do that. So, I, you know, I want to support our farmers. Uh, but what the way they are doing this right now, I, I am not supportive of. How legitimate a concern is it to, to be worried that these markets close permanently? 
oh, to it, our products. Absolutely. It takes a long time. It's like I was talking to some business people here who were saying, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work to get a new customer. And if I lose a customer, sometimes you don't get them back. And so we certainly hope that that's not the case. I mean, we, we have to have those markets. Our farmers have to have those markets. But um, we have no idea whether they're going to be able to get those back. So I want to be tough on trade. I want to export products, not jobs. But right now there's not a plan. It's very chaotic. And our folks are getting caught in the middle and being hurt. Well, you know, a cynical person might suggest that this aid package that's being put out to farmers is, is meant to pacify a voter block uh, that otherwise would be upset if they really looked at some of the trade policies and the impact that they're having. Uh, how right would they be if, if somebody suggested well, it, that? it is a political response, no question. I mean, we passed a five-year farm bill, which I helped lead sure. back in December, that lays out the right way to support agriculture. And we, we have both trade promotion dollars, we have... Uh, assistance when there's a downturn, uh, risk management thing, uh, efforts like crop insurance, conservation policies, a whole range of things that are the right way to spend American tax dollars. So instead of just having that and allowing them to trade, uh, they're, they're really, in my judgment, throwing money uh, at a problem that they created in the administration. And I, this is certainly not sustainable long term. So. Well, I, I have to ask you this. I mean, you know, your Republican cohorts in the Senate have not really said a whole lot about this. They've been very quiet. Mitch McConnell is not moving a lot of bills that are being passed by the House. In fact, you guys, according to your fellow Senator Gary right. Peters, all you're doing is, a, is basically voting on judges right, right. now. Right, Gridlock in the Senate. Is there any likelihood that you see that that changes anytime soon? Will, will any of the things that the House is doing right now get a fair hearing in the Senate anytime soon? Well, I hope so. I mean, uh, I don't know. The Senate Majority Leader is the one who determines the schedule. But I can tell you that I've been leading the efforts to make sure we do everything we can to bring up the House bills on health care that protect people with pre-existing conditions. Um, that's in jeopardy, and about half the families in Michigan have somebody with a pre-existing health care sure. uh, health uh, uh, issue, and so that's important. We've seen over a hundred days since the Violence Against Women Act expired that funds shelters and support for victims of domestic assault. Last week, I helped lead that effort to try to get the Senate to bring it up. This ought to be a no-brainer, and we haven't been able to. So I'm. Uh, leading efforts to do everything we can to act on things that are bipartisan. They are bar bipartisan. And at the moment, uh, the Senate leader is, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, for whatever reason, is choosing not to bring them up. Well, I, I know you have a panel to get to, so I'm going to let you go right now. But I will call you when we get back to town because there are going to be Good. some other things that we need to talk about. Perfect. But, uh, you Perfect. know, you've got to go talk to an audience right now yeah, as opposed great. to mine. So keep up the great Senator work. Senator Stabenow, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Absolutely. All right. All Senator right. Debbie Stabenow here on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Like I said, I know you got to go. Oh, I, I, I could have stuck on that stuff for right Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services.
This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for being with us as we broadcast live from the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Mackinac Policy Conference. My guest right now, U.S. Senator Gary Peters, Democrat, of course, from Michigan. Thank you for being here. Great to be I with you, Craig. Formerly my congressional representative as well in what I like to call the 14th Super District yeah. because it's shaped like the S on Superman's chest, You're which right. makes no sense. Uh, why don't we get into that subject for just a minute? We're waiting for a court ruling. On gerrymandering in Michigan. Right. Uh, your thoughts on the decisions that the lower courts have made thus far about that. Did you agree? I mean, even though you won that district, the way that Michigan was cut up in the congressional races in the state Senate was really bizarre. Oh, it was bizarre. There's, there's no question that you need to bring some rhyme and reason to the districting. It was clear in the case. I think they really were able to outline that. They had some pretty compelling evidence as well that the Republicans, as they were drawing it, had clear political intent to pack Democrats in a, in a couple of districts to be able to be more competitive uh, in other districts. And, you know, the, uh, the redistricting process needs to change. That's why I'm very pleased with Proposal 2 that passed, where we're going to have a, an independent commission that will draw those lines after the 2020 census. I think that's the kind of reform we need. You need to have competitive districts where there's a real election in the general election, not just in the primaries, uh, to bring folks uh, toward more towards uh, finding common ground. I think it'll deal with some of the polarization you see in Congress and in the legislative branches as well. Well, and you guys had a press conference about that very subject today, uh, talking about cooperation, bipartisan cooperation that uh, you guys are trying to, at least from, from the region and right. in the state of Michigan in particular, are showing around issues around the Great Lakes, things that you can agree on. Um, Given this hyperpartisan atmosphere we've been in for the last few years, and it certainly seems that way, is it different on the ground as to what's actually going on and the level of cooperation that does exist in Washington? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a couple levels uh, as to where the cooperation is. So on some of the uh, real big issues, uh, that's been tough to get people together. And, and quite frankly, we have a president that's, uh, that is very polarizing. Uh, to say the least, uh, which makes it difficult for people to come together. But at least in the Senate, and I found the Senate, I've served in the House, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. now in the Senate. I find the Senate is different primarily because it's smaller. There are 100 of us uh, in the Senate. You actually get to know all 100 folks uh, when you're in the House with 435. It's tough to get to know people just in your own party, let alone the other side. In the Senate, we do get to know each other. Uh, we A lot of our rules require unanimous consent. The, the, the Senate is not designed to act real quickly, uh, and yeah. so you need to have everybody agree. And in order to get everybody to agree, you usually have to have some relationships, and, and you don't want to be disagreeable because people will remember that, too. So, so there are a lot of areas uh, where I work uh, with my Republican colleagues. I'll introduce legislation, and most times, more often than not, I'll get a Republican co-sponsor where I find that we can find some common ground and work together to try to pass things. Are there limits to, to what that's going to be good for, though? I mean, obviously, if you're talking about protection of the Great Lakes, restoring funding for the Great Lakes Initiative, things along those lines, you can get a lot yeah. of cooperation around things that we all recognized as being valuable. Clean water, obviously right. one of them. Uh, cleaning up PFAS contamination. We're starting to get some coalescence around that issue as well. Uh, how important is it to find those couple of things? And, and does that ever lead to broader cooperation on other issues that may be more contentious? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, uh, obviously those are different than, than the contentious ones. And if you're talking about some of the, the big uh, issues, whether it's immigration or health care, some of those are very uh, contentious. But uh, the other bills that we can all agree on and some other bills that are uh, that I think are more common sense and how we make things more efficient. Uh, are one, we should be doing that because we got to get those done as well. And the American people expect us to get that done. And we want to be able to do what's good for the state of Michigan uh, as well. But through that experience, you also develop relationships that help you have at least more meaningful conversations on some of the on some of the tougher issues. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, uh, I, I work, I'm a member, or I'm now the ranking member on Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. Uh, overseeing the Homeland Security Department. And uh, it's a lot of contentious issues related to border security. 
the chair of that committee is uh, Ron Johnson, who's a very conservative Republican from Wisconsin. Uh, his politics is different than me as a Democrat uh, from Michigan. But we have a really good working relationship, and uh, we, we are able to really kind of find some common ground, and I hope we're able to move the ball forward on some real concrete solutions to what is uh, some big problems. But that wouldn't happen if you didn't have the relationship. Well, last week, I believe it was just a few days ago, you went down to the U.S.-Mexico border, I was, correct? Right. The southern border. Um, what did you find out down there? What were you looking for? Well, we want to get a sense of what exactly is happening uh, there and what, what's the process that we're going through. We have a very large number of families that are coming across from uh, Central America, and, and uh, we... Uh, I want to make sure that uh, uh, we're following the law and there's proper due process, but find out how can we speed up the process because the folks who who have legitimate asylum claims certainly are entitled to a full due process under uh, we are a country of laws and and we need to follow those laws. Uh, but there are other folks that may not have credible claims, and we should be able to process them more quickly and, and uh, repatriate, the, repatriate them back. Those are not easy issues, though, and so we wanted to get a sense and see exactly what's happening with our uh, CBP officers. Well, you know, but but the, the approach that we've seen so far from the administration has been, let's just see if we can't find a way to close off the border, stop all immigration at this point in time, has actually been suggested before, um, and also cutting off aid to those very countries where those people are fleeing. Uh, the response to the crisis seems to be solely aimed at keeping, ignoring it, finding a way to ignore it and not have the U.S. be a part of any solution to this issue. How realistic is this in terms of what we need to do and Frankly, are you concerned about the level of aid going to some of these countries like Honduras where these problems are happening? Yeah, it's uh, we, uh, and what the president did made no sense to me and made no sense to folks who are working uh, on uh, this issue. And he's certainly not looking at this in a, in a thoughtful, comprehensive way, and, and his rhetoric poisons a lot of our ability to, to, do with this, to deal with it. Uh, you talked about aid uh, to help uh, countries in Central America. Uh, that's uh, very important because we have, there, there are two things. There's push factors and there are pull factors. The pull factors would be if people think they can easily get into the country, that may pull more people towards it. But there are real push factors. You've got uh, an economy that uh, is very weak. Uh, the economic condi- uh, conditions in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador are, are extremely poor as a result of droughts that have impacted agricultural yields. People have a hard time feeding themselves. You've got drug cartels uh, that dominate things down there, and the level of violence uh, is uh, is very high in the amount of extortion that goes on. I'll say a lot of those drug cartels, they make all their money because they're feeding uh, the uh, opioid epidemic in the United States and the drug demand that we have up here. But it makes it very unsafe for folks. And so being able to try to deal with some of those issues that people are dealing with, uh, hopefully to keep them in their country as opposed to them making a trek and showing up on our border. So those are important investments uh, to try to deal with the situation. And the president wasn't, you know, he said, we're we're not going to give money to corrupt governments. Folks need to remember most of the money that we sent down there went to non-governmental organizations and religious groups and others that are trying to deal with the humanitarian issues in those countries. So people don't feel like they have to head to the United States uh, for their own survival. Well, you mentioned the opioid crisis, and I do want to talk about this, because this is a homeland security issue. It is, no question. uh, So so are you seeing any ideas coming out in terms of combating this that that makes sense to you right now? Because it doesn't show any signs of slowing. In fact, I mean, the amount of fentanyl that's actually entering the country is increasing, and a lot of it's starting to be manufactured around here. Apparently, it's not that hard to do. How are we going to deal with this in an effective way? Because, frankly, you see people that would never be caught up in the drug trade that are getting caught up in this. 
Well, uh, again, another complex issue, uh, but it's really related to uh, the demand. We got to stop the demand. You talked about fentanyl coming in, and you know the experience has been: if the demand is there for a product, it'll find a way into sure. the, in the country. And we spend a lot of money trying to interdict and intercept, and they do. We do interdict and intercept a lot of it, but there's a lot more coming in because the demand is so high. So we have to, we have to treat this for the problem that it is, which is a public health crisis. Uh, folks are, are dying uh, uh, regularly. In fact, uh, talking to the uh, executive of Macomb County, uh, Mark Ackle, he was saying someone dies in Macomb County every day of a drug overdose, a heroin overdose. It's, it is a crisis that we, we have to deal with. But there's many facets. One, we, we want to deal with the medical community that has probably overprescribed uh, opioids sure. uh, to deal with issues. So they've come a long way, though. They realize that they've got to change their ways. And uh, doctors are really re- reevaluating uh, when they do that, when it's appropriate. Uh, we also have to make sure uh, our our uh, drug store chains are keeping good records of what scripts they're filling so you don't have someone with a fake script that goes to five drug stores and gets five scripts filled. Uh, they should not allow that to, to happen. Got to have pharmaceutical companies that are being responsible in the way that they distribute their, their uh, drugs. Uh, we've got to have treatment programs in place. Uh, I worked on legislation that actually got passed to deal with uh, medicated-assisted treatment, which is probably one of the most effective ways to sure. wean someone off of uh, heroin products, for example. Uh, but uh, in the past, you could only uh, give that to uh, individuals 18 and, and older. Uh, but adolescents are every bit uh, susceptible to all of this, and we're seeing increasing levels of addiction with adolescents. We're now going to try to make it so physicians can treat those uh, folks as well. You know, when you look at it, though, from a Homeland Security perspective, uh, in terms of the way that Homeland Security has typically worked and and, and the projects they've typically taken on, obviously you're doing anti-terrorism investigations, there's a lot of, you know, border issues and that kind of stuff, enforcement sort of things, but is there a way to utilize some of the resources for that massive department, frankly, in terms of actually treating the problem within the country's borders, not just an external threat. Well, I think uh, the, the department would deal with, with the, the border uh, uh, issue. Yeah. Uh, the internal, I think, you know, where some of those resources are, are the departments of health and human services, for example. You know, our health departments is that it's, it's a public health crisis, sure. uh, not a law like enforcement Like I said, it's issue. also a security issue. Well, it is. It's security, uh, and the security issue is that uh, it makes our borders more susceptible yeah. to bad bad uh, actors and smugglers that, that come across. There's no question about that, and I don't disagree. Uh, but we treat it through the public health uh, departments and as a health crisis. Now, let's talk a little bit about the borders for just a second, because, um, you know, obviously we're spending a lot of focus discussing the southern border and talking about, talking about, frankly, immigration reform strictly through a southern border sort of perspective. What do we need to know about what's happening at the northern border right now and, and what needs to be shored up that's going to make that more effective? Well, no, I think that's a good question. And, and I remind my colleagues uh, in Washington regularly, we have a northern border in this country. It's not just the southern border. You wouldn't know that by uh, all of the, the rhetoric. And uh, in the northern border is critically important to Michigan's economy uh, as well. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at the, the amount of the volume of trade that goes through uh, uh, a port of entry in, in North America, of the three busiest ports of entry, two of them are in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Laredo, Texas is number one. Detroit, Windsor, two. Port Huron, Sarnia, three. And the Department of Homeland Security has, has a difficult job. Uh, they have to first and foremost, and I think this is our priority, keep us safe, keep the borders uh, secure. I think it's a fundamental job of the federal government to keep us all safe. But, two, they also have to allow trade and commerce to move as efficiently and as quickly as possible, especially with our manufacturing industry here and just-in-time delivery. And as products come across, they got to be at the factory right on time. And if they're not, the whole supply chain gets messed up. So, you know, how do you move that forward? And we have a, a problem that I'm working to deal with now is that uh, we're seeing uh, a CBR, or CBP, rather, uh, Customs Border Protection folks being 
being uh, transferred down to the southern border. And that means traffic backups, uh, slower uh, processing across the border. And that has a that has an impact on jobs here uh, in Michigan. Well, you know, you are a senator from Michigan, so a couple of things that you have to worry about, obviously manufacturing and agriculture, both of them with a bit of uncertainty right now over the issue of tariffs. Uh, we, we just got an aid package passed uh, for farmers who are going to be impacted by these tariffs that are being put on, on agricultural products. We may or may not see automotive tariffs coming in back. Uh, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen. Aluminum, steel, we've already seen some impacts of this. What questions are you getting from businesses here and the farmers in the state about, about the policy and what can happen there? Well, I think farmers are particularly concerned, uh, all, all of them, all of the above to your question. Uh, but I'll tell you the thing that uh, we have to worry about on farmers. And But before I mention that, I mean, first, you know, we have to make sure that uh, trade rules are followed. And we sure. need to make sure that the Chinese are violating them. You, you have to stand up to that. But you have to do it in a thoughtful way, in a strategic way. And we can talk about that. I don't think the president has been doing that. But the farmers are concerned that they will start losing markets uh, because uh, food folks still need to buy food yeah. uh, products. And if the United States isn't selling it to them, they'll go somewhere else. And usually once they go somewhere else, they don't come back. So what, this is not a short-term problem for farmers. They're concerned that their, their export markets, uh, they're going to lose them. And if they lose their export markets, uh, temporary subsidies that the, the president is, is giving the farmers now, who they say they don't want temporary money, they want, they want to be able to export their products, and they're afraid in the future they're going to be impacted. That's wrong. So what would be a more effective policy in your mind? Again, if you're talking about making sure that uh, intellectual property rights are not being stolen by Chinese companies, I, you know, is there a possibility that we could see a rule change for businesses that are doing business in China that they don't have to necessarily pair up with a nationalist company in China? Right. You know, because they're just basically ripping off patents. Blatantly. Well, they are. Yeah, they are. And that, and that cannot be tolerated. We have to be tough. H- how do you do it? But I think, you know, part, and part of it when you have tariff strategy is you're a more targeted approach. Uh, you don't have wholesale tariffs across everything. You, you take it on a, uh, on, a, on a targeted basis. Uh, the president didn't do that. Uh, in fact, you, I think you also you want to go into these kinds of uh, – negotiations with your friends and your allies with you because uh, they're having the same problems. The Canadians, for example, are having the same problems with China. But instead, the president imposed tariffs on the Canadians on steel tariffs, so picking a fight with our friends. And so when you go against China, uh, we're going alone. You're a lot stronger when you go with your friends because if the Chinese are going to have countervailing tariffs, they aren't going to do countervailing tariffs to the whole world. Uh, that would be yeah. – uh, that's not something that would benefit the China. They can't do it. So that's where you have the negotiating position to say we're not as the world community we're going to we're going to put our foot down and not tolerate you stealing our intellectual property. You know that international cooperation has been a hallmark of every administration going back in my entire life obviously. I mean you need some sort of consensus before you move forward on things like going to war right. for instance. Uh, trade battles, all this kind of stuff we, we're going away from that. How do we restore it? Is there a possibility, or are some of these relationships damaged permanently? Well, uh, because, I, think, I mean, these are our best allies in yeah. many instances. Yeah, we've seen an administration turn on our best allies. Uh, I think uh, uh, things. It's not. I hope it's not permanent because uh, those other allies know they need the United States as well. We we all need each other. That's just the way the world community works. So a change of administration that has a different approach, I think that would be welcomed by folks. Well, you know, what? let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the Senate right now. Uh, you know, <laughs> Mitch McConnell made a bit of a, a statement yesterday in terms of uh, Supreme Court vacancy, if one arises. It was a hypothetical that he was asked about. And they said, well, what happens if Supreme Court justice dies next year? It's an election year. He said, and we'll fill it. We'll fill it. Which, 
I guarantee it raised the ire of the Democrats, obviously, yeah, in the wake of the Merrick Garland stuff. Absolutely. How, what's that relationship like right now with the leadership in the Senate? And is this the kind of thing that interferes with other business getting done? There's no question it interferes. And, and Mitch McConnell has been a, an impediment to that. Uh, and, and when you just look at what he's been doing the last eight weeks or so, is that uh, when Senate's the floor time on the U.S. Senate is very precious time. It's a limited amount of time you have to get the, the people's work done. And basically the last uh, eight weeks, all we've done are judicial nominations. There's been no legislating going on. Mitch McConnell is not moving any legislation to deal with the problems. Well, Andy Levin was complaining about that a little bit earlier on the program. Absolutely. You know, and so the House is passing a number of pieces of legislation related to education, related to health care, protecting the Great Lakes, all the things that we care deeply about. Senate's not moving it because he's moving just nominations. It only takes a majority vote. They changed the rules, so it's only a majority vote for lifetime appointments to the federal judiciary. Uh, he also uh, changed the rules uh, on debate. It used to be 30 hours of the debate. You could go up to 30 hours of the debate for a lifetime appointment, split evenly, 15 for Democrats, 15 for Republicans. The Republicans changed that. Now there's only two hours of debate, one hour of debate from the Democrats for uh, candidates who will have a lifetime appointment. Many of these judges are not particularly well qualified, and they tend to be in their late 30s and early 40s. They're going to be around a long time. So how does that make you feel? It makes me feel uh, uh, very frustrated and angry. Uh, that's why politics, or I should say elections, do matter. And uh, it's really why I'm going to be working very hard to make sure we uh, have a Democratic U.S. Senate. All right. Gary Peters, Senator Gary Peters, thank you very much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, it. Craig. And this is The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit. One-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Hey there, my name is Seth Ressler. Hi everyone, it's Becky Scarcello. I am new to the Detroit area. And I've been here my whole life. So we started a podcast together. It's called The D. Detroit's arts and entertainment podcast. We cover concerts, comedy, plays, food, drink, all kinds of stuff. All the cool events around town, things to do, and the people that are doing them. Can we talk about some of the people we've had as guests on this podcast? Hey, this is Mark Kurlianchik, the restaurant critic for the Detroit Free Press. Hi, I'm Andy Lisi, and I host Essential Music on 1019 WDET. Hi, this is Mark Ridley of Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. Hey, this is Kate Williams, executive chef of Lady of the House. Hey, this is Mel Town from WRAF in Detroit. This is Josh Mallerman, author of Bird Box. This is Carmen Hart. Curator of film at the Detroit Institute of Arts. President and founder of Valentine Distilling Company. The general manager of innovation experiences for the Henry Ford. Arts and entertainment editor at the Detroit Free Press. The Michigan Science Center. Arts Beats and If you like going out in the city of Detroit, you're going to like this podcast. The Debrief Podcast. We like to say Detroit's moving. Keep up. The Debrief. Your guide to Detroit's art and entertainment scene.